you take note today, you'll notice that the title of today's sermon is Avoiding an Unfulfilling Marriage. Avoiding an Unfulfilling Marriage. Now, I, talk, I picked that topic specifically because I didn't want to say avoiding an unhappy marriage. I didn't want to say avoiding a miserable marriage. I think the key is to understand that in marriage, we are brought fulfillment. Now, much of the narrative that we get from the word from the world is that, you know, if you don't get married, you're not you're fine. You're fulfilled that way. You don't have to be married. You can be fulfilled alone. But the reality is, is that God has either called us all to singleness or to be married. There's no in between. And I'm going to tell you now that the majority of people who have been called have been called to actually be married. So how do you know that? Because the percentage of people who have been called to singleness is a percentage of people who have been called to only devote their lives to the mission, to the evangelism, and to the work of Christ. And so that can't be everybody because the other part of God's created order is that we are to marry and to be fruitful and to multiply and raise our children in the admonition of God. So the majority of people have actually been called to be married. Now, we're going to look at this, and the the plan is to not look at this like we typically do, which is from a a bird's eye view, but we really want to get down to the ground and really look at the truth of what we're going to learn from Scripture today and analyze what marriage should mean from us, for us. And so this sermon is not just for those of us who are married. This sermon is for any of us in any state, any perspective that we find ourselves in our life. Now, There are typical places that pastors will go when they want to talk about marriage. And you probably know those scriptures, Ephesians, a lot of other places. But I want to go somewhere different today to look at a very real approach to what we should think of when we're picking a spouse, what we should think of when we want to be held together with that spouse, and how we can be sanctified in our relationship with that spouse. And so today, as opposed to going to some of the more popular texts, We're going to go to Genesis and look at Jacob and Rachel and the way that Jacob not only worked for, but also pursued his wife. And when he was choosing his spouse, he didn't just choose her on the basis of what made the most sense. He chose her on the basis of love. And I know we are told, you know, quite often that love is one of the more irrational things that you can feel, but that's actually not true. And so we're going to look at that today, and we're going to look at how we should look first, if you're not married, at choosing a spouse, how you should keep your spouse if you are married, and then for everybody else, everything else in between. And so there are a lot of narratives out there from the secular perspective, and Some of them are scary, but sometimes what is even scarier is the narrative that is sometimes propagated by those of us who even identify as Christians. In a lot of ways, we have not encouraged marriage on the basis of God honoring love. We've encouraged marriage on the basis of social contract. We've encouraged marriage on the basis of a social contract, which means marriage has become more about financial stability, social status, and rationality. But the thing is, is that none of those things should be the primary reason behind you finding a spouse. You want to know what the key is. 
As I just mentioned, the key to finding a spouse is love. It is not all those other things in between. While those may be important, what you will find quite often that if you have all those other things and don't have love in a marriage, you don't have a marriage. The unfortunate reality is that because many of us have only looked for the things that will fulfill us here on earth, whether that's our social status, whether that is our income, many people have gotten married based on the wrong pretext. And so what we want to do today is reevaluate how we look at why we get married and see if even some of us can look within our own marriages and be drawn to each other again on the basis of love. Now, When we understand this, that this isn't just any type of love that I'm talking about, but what we're going to see today is that it is self-sacrificing, God-honoring love. So today, we really are going to take time to unpack this. And if you are married, and I want you to see that whether or not your marriage honors God, and if you hope to be or know people, I think this would be a great resource. So Now, one of the things that we have to do is essentially forsake everything that we've been told in secular society regarding marriage and really take on what the Bible has said. And so some of the typical narratives from the world go like this. It has been said that marriage is about three different rings that you get. You all know these. The first one is the engagement ring. The next one is the wedding ring. And I guarantee you, if you adapt the world's mentality for marriage, the last ring you're going to get is suffering. All right? So the last thing that most of us end up falling into in our marriages. So let's go ahead and get started. This is Genesis 29. Genesis chapter 29. We're going to go to verse 4. Genesis 29 and 4. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Naor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And we see Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. And But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then the water will, then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a sheep, a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock Um, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. And all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my flesh stayed with him a month. Then Laban said, Behold, you are my kinsman. Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, 
But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give you her than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for the time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and went in to her. Laban gave his, his female servant Zippah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete this week, this one, and we, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and he complete, and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his, his female servant Bilhah to his servant Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in the word, Lord. There is such rich truth regarding marriage, regarding how you have patterned marriage after Christ's love for us, God. And so I just pray for clarity and understanding and truth today as we take this journey. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now there is a lot of stuff that we're going to have to unpack here, but we can't do everything. I know you're reading this and like, what about this? What about this? What about that? That seems weird. You can ask me all those questions tomorrow on the Bible study. But specifically today, we are going to be dealing about elements of engagement, the petition that we see and the sacrifice and eventual marriage with Jacob and Rachel. So as I mentioned above, Marriage now has often become about a social contract, but let me actually explain what I mean by a social contract. Because when many of us are preparing ourselves to get married, we treat it as a very pragmatic thing. It's very practical. You marry a person that makes sense. You marry a person within your same economic standing. You marry a person that when you get with that person to have kids, regardless, that you will be provided for and that you'll be able to provide for them. And so it's very practical, but the funny thing that we see is that you used to see everywhere in movies that when people got married, they married the person that they fell in love with. It's like every major movie that you saw. I don't know if you remember this, but there was even a movie with Jennifer Anderson and Vince Vaughn where they did not end together. And the fans got wind of it and they actually had to go re-record the ending so that they could end up together. Because all the old movies said the person you love the most is the person you typically end up with. But I don't know if you've noticed this now. Typically, when people end up in marriages in movies, they almost never anymore end up with the person they love. They always end up with the person that makes the most sense. They always end up with the person that's the safest. They always end up with the most sensible decision, the most rational person, because we now view love as an irrational reason to marry somebody. Because as we've been told, not only is love blind, but it's also deaf and dumb. 
But perhaps that's because we don't quite understand what love is when it is sourced in God. There's a movie, one of my favorite movies, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and this is God. And he is this formerly really, really well-known writer who's hit very hard times. He's kind of an alcoholic, and he needs one more good story to really break back into his success. And so what he ends up doing is working with this girl who is a spy. And as they work together, obviously they become intimate, and he realizes he loves her. But she's a goth. She doesn't have any money. She's kind of strange, very introverted. And so as they finish this project they're working on, he is back to notoriety and success and acclaim. And after they get finished, she comes to him to bring him this gift to celebrate their love. And what she sees is that he's gone back to his girlfriend, the one who believed that he should be successful because even in his mind, to be with the person he actually loved is an irrational thing. He went back to the person who was of the same social status as he was. He went back to the person who was the most sensible. He was rich. He was highly well regarded. And so was this woman. And so he realized that that person should be the person that he should be with. And what has happened with us and in our culture is that out of trying to make sense of marriage, we realize that we can't get married on something that we think that is so fickle like love. It must be something stronger. And so now it's like, what's your credit score, right? How much do you make? What kind of job do you have? Do you own your house? Do you rent an apartment? How long do you have to pay off your car? We ask all these things. How many kids do you have? That one may be important, but we're asking all these things about these people in terms of what you should be doing in order to get married. But the real question should first be, do you love Jesus? And the next one should be, can you love me? That should be the basis of everything that we know and understand about why people should be married. But those are almost never the questions we ask because we feel like that is too fickle and fragile to be married to somebody. Now, what I want you to see is that not only was what we see with Jacob radically different than our culture, he was marrying basically just because he loved Rachel. But it was also radically different than everything that happened in their culture as well. Because what I want you to see is just as much as marriage is a social contract for us now, it was the same way back then. In fact, in all the history of time, marriage has always been more about status and standing than it had been about love. So I want you to get this and see this in our very first point of the sermon today, and it is this. Number one, marriage as a social contract. Marriage as a social contract. So can any of you see in this situation who was most concerned about the social contract here? It wasn't Jacob. It wasn't Rachel. It was Laban. It was her father. How do we know this? Look at what he says. He says, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, we aren't going to beat Laban up here because Laban is doing very much what everybody, specifically a father, would have done in that time because you have to understand this. Most of them, because they're harvesting, they're working around the house, she's not just an asset to him. She was free labor. And so he understands that if I release my daughter to you, then I will no longer have her to work for me. So he says, what are you going to give in exchange to so that I can give you my daughter. He's making his daughter a commodity so that he 
he can make sure that he keeps as much money as he possibly can. He's basically exchanging his daughter for money. See, he merely sees this as a means of gain for him, and he proposes the question. Now, you say, well, that's the cultural thing, so we should be okay with it. But that's not even the original way that God designed marriage to work. Even the things that we read in the Bible, when it happens like this, just because it is in the Bible doesn't mean that that was what God intended. Marriage was never about an even exchange so we can make sure we're all good. No, marriage is first loving God and then displaying the love of God to somebody else. That's what it was all about. But he sees it as an opportunity to get ahead. That is why I want you to understand this. I talk about the culture all the time, but when people look back on our lives and write the history on our culture, we're not going to get a pass just because that is what the culture was doing. We, just like everybody else, have to have our cultures redeemed, whether that's regarding what we think about race, whether that's regarding what we think about marriage. It needs to be redeemed in Jesus Christ so that we can understand and know what the truth should be. And so when he sees that this is going to happen, he says there has to be some exchange. Sometimes that exchange was money. Sometimes that exchange was cattle. That's what we typically would call a dowry. And what that dowry did is it made sure that everybody would be in a good financial position after this marriage would happen. Now, not only is he concerned about how much money he's going to make, but he's actually concerned about how much money he's going to keep because he says, wait a minute, you're one of my kinsmen. Why does he say that? Because even Laban realizes if you are the son of my sister, that means that whatever happens, all of our money stays in the family. He's not, he's not concerned whether or not this man loves God or loves his daughter. Your blood of my blood, your bone of my flesh. That means that not only does this, I don't care whether or not this marriage actually works, it works for me. Even in our own lives, though we don't think about it consciously like this, many of us, whether or not the marriage actually works for us as an individual in our relationship with God, if it works for our finances, we'll do it. If it works for the appearances, we'll do it. If it works for everything that we were told a husband should be outside of the word of God, we will do it. Because so much of the world is influencing our thoughts. And so what they understood it to be is that it was a social status thing. The rich married the rich. Families married the families. The poor married the poor. Now you think that's more common then, but it's actually more common now. When I was working on this sermon, I did a little research. I said, how often is it that people of different social statuses marry one another? And it is actually below 40%. Which, not only is it having a tremendous impact on our world, but it's also having a tremendous impact within the family. People almost never marry somebody who is outside of their social demographic. And so what has happened over the years, one of the reasons why the wage gap has increased is because the rich marry the rich. The middle class marries the middle class. The poor marry the poor. But you'll also notice that as the wage gap has increased, so has the number of divorces. 
Why is it that celebrities only marry celebrities? In fact, there are way more people out in the world than just in the celebrity culture, yet somehow they can always find one another because it's a social status thing. It's a demographic thing. You have to marry somebody that's reasonable, that's sensible, that's in the same level that you're in. Because the marriage outside of your demographic will be a farce. And some people would say even a mistake. And most of the reason many of us do this is because we go with the safest person in mind. We go with what makes the most sense. But unfortunately is many of those marriages end up in divorce. Not only do many of those marriages end up in divorce, how many of those marriages should probably end up in divorce that never do? Because they merely see it as just a social contract. And if you think I'm making it up, what just happened with Bill and Melinda Gates? A part of their social contract was that she agreed you can have this little side piece as long as our money stays intact. That's a social contract. And when once the kids were perfectly aged and everybody could get their right amounts of money, then we're going to socially agree to break the contract as well. Because what's happened? For many of us, marriage is nothing more than a transaction, just like when we go to the bank. It's a transaction. And for many of us, you can give into the marriage when you feel like giving into it. And when you want to emotionally and spiritually withdraw yourself, you do that as well. And when you feel like, okay, it's time for me to reinvest myself into the marriage, you'll do that too. Why is that the case? Because we don't see marriage as something that comes from God. We see it as something that we have to get the most benefit out of. We see something that we have to make the most sense out of. I don't know what that is. It could be this mic. Is that this mic? Okay, it's not this mic. All right. And so we've convinced ourselves that the, most, the safest thing that we can do. But the thing that we notice about Jacob is that J Jacob completely ignores what the culture is doing. He's not concerned about this being somebody he's related to. He's not concerned about the cattle. He's not concerned about the years. The only thing he cared about in this relationship was Rachel. His only motivation for everything that he did was that he wanted to marry her. And so that brings us to our next point, which is marriage as love. I love how the text puts it so succinctly here. There are no additives. There is no hyperbole. But he says it so simply. Jacob loved. That's it. Jacob loved Rachel. This was the beautiful picture of his desire to marry her. He loved her. But I want you to understand this too. This isn't some arbitrary use and definition of the word love like we think. Love is action. Love isn't just something you feel. Your emotions are quite unreliable. If you think love is just an emotion, no wonder why you're in and out of it all the time. That's not what love is. Love is action. Love is not just a feeling, but love is doing. So what is Jacob initially willing to do? He's initially willing to work for Laban for seven years for his wife. He felt that love and it made him give of himself to Laban for seven years. 
to the people in here who are married, the reality is that we should ask ourselves this question. Do we love our spouses enough? Not back then when we got married. I mean now. Do you still love them enough to have worked so hard and so long and be willing to wait for your spouse? What about our wives? Would you be as willing now as you were back then to wait for your husband if he had to work for you for that amount of time? Again, I don't mean when you first got married. I mean now. What do you feel about your spouse now? Because the reality is, if you aren't both being individually sanctified in Christ, there is no way that your marriage is being sanctified. Because there is no way you should feel less intensely about your spouse today than on your wedding day. If that is the case, then either you are not being sanctified in Christ, they are not being sanctified in Christ, or neither one of you is. Because the marriage is not about I do my thing and you do your thing. Everything we do now happens as one. So if we are being sanctified, we're being sanctified as one. If we are being neglecting in our relationship with God, we are doing that as one. Because the two have now been made one flesh. And there is no separation that we like to get there. So no, one spouse can't be fine in the marriage and then the other isn't. It doesn't work like that. One can't be content and the other one wants to get out. It doesn't work like that. See, the basis of love as the husband is grounded on the man. It is grounded on the man giving of himself for his wife. That is it. How do we know that? Because that's what scripture tells us. This is when we go to Ephesians, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is what you should be looking for, women in the room. If you are not married, that is what you should look for in a spouse. It doesn't matter what his career is. It doesn't matter how much he makes. Can, when it's you and him, can he sanctify you in the word of God? Can he wash you in the word of God? Can he be the priest, the prophet, and the king of your household? Because if he can't, I don't care how much he makes, you'll be miserable. I'm telling you this now. There is no amount of money that will make an unsatisfied woman satisfied. Because she'll come home every night and go right to that closet to be reminded of the worth of that husband. If you can't go to your husband and be reminded of his words, something is wrong. And if you don't even know that that should be the worth of a husband, Something is wrong. But I do want you to understand this. Many people, when they talk about this, they talk about his diligence to work for Rachel. But I tell you this, Jacob is not the standard for how we love our wives. Because he is a flawed, fallible, sinful man. We're going to see that very clearly. So even he is not the standard. 
What does the Bible say the standard is? The Bible says that the standard for how a husband loves his wife is how Jesus Christ has loved his church. Nothing less. Nothing less. And not just that. And gave himself up for her. You know within a few hours of conversation with some selfish man whether or not he will be willing to give himself up for you. That's what you should be looking for. Because it doesn't matter how much he pays for stuff. That same man will pay all your bills and still not freely give himself up to all his other attractions. Will he be willing to give himself up the way Jesus Christ gave himself up? That is the mark. That is the gauge. That is the the measurement. And if you realize that's not possible, then you should also realize as practical as this would be, I need to move on. Because I guarantee you this. You will never be miserable. If you are a real Christian person, you will never be miserable with somebody who loves God more than they love you. You'll never be miserable. You will always be miserable when somebody loves themselves more than they love you and anybody else. You will always be unhappy. And you know that when you see it. And so many times because what is sensible, we gloss over what is obvious. Listen, we have to understand that the measurement of love that comes from Jesus Christ is that the but also delicately loves his wife. What do I mean by that? That means that even when she is wrong, even when she is stressed, even when she's too tired, that he loves her anyway. That even means that you're meeting your wife in her tender and vulnerable areas and loving her well, even in those places? What if it is compassionately loving her when you know she's wrong? What, is, what if it is compassionately loving her when she has made a wrong decision and standing between her and the abuse and the shame and the guilt taking the brunt of it, not worried about how people view you, but protecting your wife the way you have been called to do. That is what a real husband does. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus says, no, I know that they are sinners. I know that they are wrong, but he took our wrong. He took our sin and he put it on his back so that the way that God saw us, he saw Jesus. In the same way, a part of our bearing our cross as husbands is that we're bearing with our wives. We're bearing even with our children. And listen, you know, this is very important because you all should know me well enough that I'm not the most emotional 
emotional person in the world. And so if I'm having to just love on the basis of emotion, I'd be all over the place. All of us would. But the source of my love has to be rooted first in that I have a relationship with God. Wives, I'm going to leave you. Are we loving our husbands well as they navigate through this? And even for some who didn't have an earthly example of what a husband should be, are we loving them well as they try to get it right? Or are we nagging them? Are we abusing them because they don't measure up to our standard? I don't know if you know what the what Proverbs says about a nagging wife, but if you don't, go look it up. It's pretty miserable. Are we giving our, our husbands the space to grow and become the man that God has designed them to be? Look, I know some of you who aren't married are like, look, Brandon, you are asking a lot. I couldn't be Jacob. I couldn't give up what Jacob gave up. I couldn't do what Jacob did. But I can guarantee you, if you feel like that, then that's because you haven't ever loved anyone like this before. If you feel like you can't sacrifice what he sacrificed, or at least look at your spouse or your future spouse the way Christ has looked at you, I guarantee you, not only do you probably misunderstand the love that Jesus has for you, you misunderstand love in general. Now, when I talk about this at the school, sometimes the kids will kick back at me and they're like, well, what about Adam and Eve? They weren't married. I don't see where they got married. And it's like, how do you know they loved each other? I'm like, how do you not know they loved each other? Like, did you not read when it says that it's not good for man to be alone and God gave Eve to Adam as a helper fit for him? That's how I know they were in love because God made Eve specifically for Adam and he made Adam specifically for Eve. Every one of us who desires to be married should understand that God has made somebody specifically for us, a helper fit for me, a helper fit for you. Whether you are helping or being helped, there is somebody, if you have been called to be married, who has been designed specifically for you. And any of us who have been in marriages before we found that person, you know when it's a bad fit. You know when it, just, it doesn't quite work the way it's supposed to. That is how every one of us should feel regarding marriage. Is that we have been or we will be given by God a helper who is fit. God gave Eve to Adam as a gift to Adam and he gave Adam to Eve as a gift for Eve. How do we know the depth of the love that Jacob has? So you may think, well, the dude just worked 14 years for one woman. Like, that's the depth that he has. But he could just be tenacious. He could just be proud. Like, I'm going to get my woman. Like, I, mean, I ain't got nothing better to do but work. But that's not the example. What actually happened goes quite deeper than that. And it goes back to Laban. How do we know that he truly loved Rachel? Because even when Laban did him wrong, he overlooked it. 
Even when he was offended, he bypassed it. He did not focus on the offense and the sin of Laban. He focused on the love that he had for Rachel. How do I know that's an example of love? Because Proverbs tells us, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Think about this. If he were so willing to overlook the offense of Laban in regard to Rachel because he loves her, think about how much more he was probably willing to overlook her offenses and her mistakes and her sins because he loved her. What's the definition of love? That's the definition of love. That it covers all sins and offenses and it will cause you to overlook a person's mistake because you love them. Jesus Christ in his sovereignty, in his goodness, those of us in this room who are believers bypass what he saw and knew about us and he went to the cross anyway. Bible says while we were yet sinners, he went to the cross anyway. What's the relationship with us? Are we overlooking and bypassing the offenses that we see to love those God has called to us to love? See, I hope you see this, but that is the perfect, that is why marriage is the perfect picture of how the church is loved by Jesus. When you are married, especially when you have children, you are displaying to them the self-sacrificing and redeeming love of Jesus. Don't underestimate that. The statistics show that the likelihood that a child grows up and remains in church has nothing to do with their church attendance. It has nothing to do with small groups, Sunday school, camps, none of that. The likelihood that a child grows up and stays in church is that they saw the church in their home. That they gathered as a family and they had devotions. And they talked about the word as a family. That they didn't see church as just something they do but that it enveloped them. And for those of us who are married, the perfect picture we're going to provide for our children is going to be how we love one another. I mean, think about how many of us in this room have been resentful or hesitant towards marriage because we didn't see the great picture of marriage that we thought we should. Think about how many of us saw terrible marriages within our own home and decided if that's what marriage is, I'm better off alone. And then think about how Jesus Christ, in his goodness, 
has said, even when we can't look to our home as an example of a good marriage, that we could look to him. And that we could see how he loved us and say, that's how your marriage should be. That is how your marriage should be. And so I or my wife makes a mistake and we get angry and we get frustrated and we disagree and we fight and we debate that the kids see that redeeming reconciliation that happens every single time. Because that's what's happened with us. I have this funny quote, it ain't really true because we don't have literal mantis, but you should marry a person that even though there is no marriage in heaven, you would still want to share your mansion with them. That's who you should marry. Not the person that makes the most sense to you, but the person God has called you to. Look, when Isaac and Rebecca had gone out and Isaac lied and said, yeah, Rebecca's my sister and um, I don't want to die because I know she's pretty, just like his father had done. He says, yeah, that's just my sister. The reason they knew that he was lying is because they looked outside one day and they were flirting with each other. And he's like, hey, because sisters and brothers don't act like that. And he's like, yeah, that's, that's my wife. And yet he's saying it live, but what's so beautiful is even when being apart would have kept them alive, they couldn't stay away from each other. Do you feel that about your spouse? That you can't get away from them? That when you have a good day, the first person you want to tell is your spouse. And when you have a bad day, the first person you want to tell is your spouse. That's love and marriage. Marriage is about love, but it's not about any kind of love. It is about God honoring Christ's reflecting love. And if you're in this room and you're not married and you're looking for a prospective partner, then you should have to ask this. Is the love that I feel towards this person rooted in the love God has for me? Or is it rooted in what only satisfies my most superficial longings? And if you are married, do people see the radical grace and mercy of God embedded in your marriage? Do your kids see that even in your fights and disagreements that there is always reconciliation? That the core of who you are it's not just love, but it's also Jesus. That is the key to being fulfilled in marriage. And yes, you can be fulfilled in marriage. You say, well, I don't have to be married to be complete, but if God has called you to marry that specific person, then he will complete you in that marriage. There's nothing shameful about that. There's nothing shameful about desiring it. There's nothing shameful about being patient towards it. 
There is nothing shameful about having real parameters from the Bible about who you're going to marry. Nothing shameful at all. Don't let the world influence you in what you think it should be. The only thing that should influence you is what the word of God has said it is. That's it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Lord, um, so many times we discuss things like this, we talk about things like this, and you know, some of us feel like we're at certain stages of our life where this may not be as relevant as it was, or we have better understanding, less understanding. Perhaps, God, some of us who desire to be married thought, man, you did decide to preach on this today. But, God, my prayer is that this has provided clarity, this has provided hope, but it has also reminded us that everything that you've called us to be and do is rooted in how you have first loved us. And the reality, God, is if we don't properly love you and that love is poured out in how we love ourselves, then we're not going to love anybody else well. So, God, for those of us in this room who are married, God, let us be united again. If there's been brokenness in our marriage, back to our spouse. And, God, those of us who desire to be married, in this time when we're not, God, will you sanctify us? Will you conform us not just into the image of a husband or a wife, but into your image? Because, God, it doesn't matter who we married. As long as we are being conformed into the image of your son, that we will look exactly the way we need to look. That we will be exactly what we need to be. And that you will reveal everything in its proper place, in its proper timing. God, I pray that every marriage that is in here, that it will glorify you, that it will honor you. God, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know who you are, who doesn't understand the relationship that you've had with us and how you've loved us despite our sins and our missteps and our mistakes, God, that you will reveal that to them today, that you will overcome their will, resist their sins, and that you will love them and save them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.